Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, for the opening of the word of God. We know, Father, that your word is light to us. It gives direction. It gives wisdom and insight, Father, and gives understanding. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that the entrance of your word today will again be light and will, and will give instruction and help us, Father. We pray, Father, for the understanding we need to not just be hearers, but to be doers of the work because we know that the doers are the ones who are blessed. And we claim that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In Philippians chapter two, we read this passage last week. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We pointed out last week and the week before that, that we have something to do where our salvation is concerned. It's not just up to God alone. We have a part to play. He said here we are to work out our salvation. Well, we don't work out the new birth because the new birth has already happened. The new birth isn't a process. The new birth is an event. At a point in time when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord of your life, you were born again. You became a child of God. You were, to, you were translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and you became his very child and he became your very father. Amen? But our salvation is broader than just the new birth. The new birth is, of course, the most important part of it, but it involves more than just the new birth. Amen. In fact, uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn over to Romans chapter 1. And uh, in verse number 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now we noticed that, uh, and we pointed out before that in C.I. Schofield's reference Bible from many years ago, he made this important note on this word salvation. He said the Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek and New Testament, the Hebrew and Greek words for salvation imply the ideas of deliverance, safety, preservation, healing, and soundness. He went on to say salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel, gathering into itself all the redemptive acts and processes. You see, there are redemptive acts and processes. Amen. Our salvation is still being worked out by our, by our participation in it. Amen. Amen. Ralph Earl, in his uh, uh, commentary, said the fundamental idea contained in soteria, that's the Greek word for salvation, is the removal of dangers menacing to life and the consequent placing of life in conditions favorable to free and healthy expansion. The basic idea of salvation is deliverance. 
See, God brought the new birth to us to deliver our spirits out of darkness and bring us into light. He gives us the word to to further deliver us in our walk. He gave us the Holy Spirit to to enlighten us, to teach us, to guide us, and and to reveal to us all of the redemptive acts and processes. Amen. So we are very much involved in working out our salvation. Let's go to Philippians again. Philippians chapter 2. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now the 13th verse is very important. For It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I said last week, only God can make us who we need to be, but only we can do what we ought to do. Notice it says that God is working in us both, both, not just one or the other, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God has, pro- has produced and made available to us a phenomenal salvation, so great a salvation, the writer of Hebrews proclaimed. It's a great salvation, but we have something to do. I remember Pastor Greg a few months ago made, made a, a statement, something along the lines of, of uh, uh, about salvation. I don't remember exactly now how he said it, but, but the end of it was our, our, our response can be reasonable. Only God can save us. We don't save ourselves, but our response to salvation can be reasonable. There ought to be a reasonable response. Amen. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today is the doing of it. Amen. Notice he said, it's not just to do his good pleasure, but first to will it. You'll never do God's good pleasure until you will to do his pleasure. God is working in you this very day, child of God, brothers and sisters, God is working in you both to will and to do, but it starts with the will. It starts with the will. And a lot of Christians just aren't willing enough. A lot of Christians don't want to hear the truth because they're not willing to change. They're not willing to be corrected. You in in and so often we know what to do. We know what we ought to do. But if you, if your heart's not in it, you really won't do it. When it comes to living for God and obeying his plan for, for your life, your, if, unless your heart is in it, you'll never really do it. You can go through the outward motions. You can go through the mechanics of it. But if your heart's not in it, you won't really do it and God won't be pleased. That's the truth both to will and to do with his good pleasure. And that's what we want to talk about, the doing of it. You know, I was, I was uh, reading about the, the, the way they harvest some of the giant sequoia trees out in, in California. My wife and I, a few years ago, had the, had the opportunity to drive through the, the, uh, the great Sequoia National Park. And there are trees in there. Now, now all of these trees are, are, are protected, so you can't cut them down. 
But in other places in California, there are other cultivars of these sequoias and these giant redwoods that they do cut down. They allow them to be harvested. But these particular trees are, per, are perfected. In fact, there's one tree there, I think it's called the, germ, the General Sherman tree. And it's not the tallest tree. Some of them are, are almost 400 feet tall. This one is a mere 275 feet tall. But it is estimated to be between 23 and 2700 years old. In other words, that, that little tree first broke the soil 300 to 700 years B.C. And it's still there. It is 36 feet in diameter. Not circumference, straight through it, diameter. 36 feet. My wife and I were able to get out and walk up to these great trees. You, you've seen the picture of the tree with the, that's been cut, you know, the tunnel in it and cars drive. Of course, that tree is dead, killed the tree. So this, the huge stump is there and it's very tall and you can, you know, you can drive cars through it. So we went and saw all those trees. But I was, I was listening to someone recently talking about uh, watching people cut down some of these other sequoias and... Uh, and by the way, that tree is the oldest living thing on the planet. That tree is the oldest living thing on the, in the entire earth. But uh, I, like I said, I was, I was listening to this person. He was talking about watching people cut down these giant sequoias and they're so big. They virtually have no, no limbs until they get up to the top. The limbs, I think, of this sequoia the, the, the largest limb, I think, was seven feet in diameter. But most of the limbs are at the top. And so when they cut these trees down, they need to get the lumber out. That's the only reason they're cutting down. One of these trees can build you know, several houses just out of one tree. Well, they would go in and they would clear a path for the tree to fall. Because if you don't, you'll take out a bunch of other trees and, and, uh, and so forth. And not only that, if, if you know, if you've ever cut down trees around here, particularly oak trees, if you don't do some trimming, that tree will get caught up in other trees and won't hit the ground. Then you have a real problem. Because you want the tree on the ground to cut it up. You don't want it leaning up and caught up in another tree. So what they would do, they would go in and they would cut a path and they'd cut down all the small trees and all the underbrush and clear a path for that tree to fall. Well, for the last couple of weeks, I've been clearing out the underbrush. Today, we're going to start cutting down some trees. Okay? Praise the Lord. We're going to go, <laughs> we're going to, go to, Hebrew, to Romans chapter 12. Glory to God. And we're going to start cutting down some of the big trees. Amen. Glory to God. Now we're going to take verse one and verse two and we're going to dissect it. And, and, and the words of this verse, these two verses are so significant that you really have to look at each word, almost every word that is, and, and, and analyze them to really get the picture of what the, the, the apostle Paul is saying to us. And listen, church, he's saying it to us just as much as he was saying it to the Romans. It applies to us today. Amen. 
Paul said, I beseech you. That word means I beg of you. I urge you. I beg of you. Now, you know, Paul wasn't begging them to do something for his own sake. He wasn't going to either prosper or not prosper or be blessed or not blessed. It wasn't going to affect him what they did. He was begging them for their own benefit. He said, I beg you. Now notice the next word, therefore. You've heard it said many times. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. The word therefore connects you with what he said just prior to this. So he's, what he's about to say is looking back at what he just said. So in order to, to, to fully grasp the transition that he was making here from what he had said to what he is about to say, so we have to look at what he did say. And so if you go through, turn back to, to, to Romans chapter 1. We're not going to, you know, obviously make a, a commentary on everything in these passages. But basically... In Romans chapters 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul was laying down doctrine of condemnation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. In chapters 1 and 2 in particular, uh, and into part of chapter 3, I suppose, he's laying the case for the just and righteous condemnation of God. He's talking about how sin really is and how that God is right and just in condemning sinful men. In fact, he paints this picture in chapter three, verse nine. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. Previously in this epistle, chapters one, chapter two, chapter three. He says, we have previously charged both Jew and Greeks, that's Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have, to, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of ass that snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are, are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you're honest, you'll say, yep, that was me. Before Christ, that was me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's painting the picture of the righteous judgment of God against wicked and sinful man. That there is none righteous, that, that all have been sold under sin. Oh, thank God I love chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. When it talks here about the righteousness of God, it isn't talking about the fact that he's righteous. He's already established that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
He's talking about God's way of man's right standing with God. But now God's way of man's right standing apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here in in chapter three, verse 21, he begins to talk about the doctrine of justification and what it means for the believer to be put into right standing with God by faith. And it's all by faith, amen? So this goes on through the third chapter, uh, the fourth chapter, uh, the fifth chapter, he's talking about this. And beginning in the sixth chapter, he starts talking about the sanctification of the believer. How, how we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. And uh, he points out this in, uh, he goes, we won't go through all the detail. He said in verse 19, I speak in terms, in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. A better word for that Greek word would be unto sanctification. So all of this is about living the sanctified life. So he talks about that in verse in chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight. And then in, verse, in chapter eight, toward the middle of the chapter, he begins to turn to the future. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Oh, glory to God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's, now, this is future. The glorification of the church is future. So in chapters uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's talking about condemnation, justification, sanctification, and finally the glorification of the saint which is to come. Now in chapters 9, 10, and 11, they're sort of like an interlude because he turns his attention away from the life of the believer and what has happened to the believer and he turns to Israel. And he begins to explain in chapters 9, 10, and 11 why the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant as far as Israel was concerned was put on hold. Because you remember the disciples, even after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they came and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they were under under occupation by the Romans. And they were looking for the Messiah. And he was the Christ. And here the Christ was right with them. He had been to the cross. He'd been raised from the dead. They said, are, now you, are you ready to, to, to restore the kingdom? See, they were expecting the Davidic covenant because remember they, 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 they called Jesus, thou son of David. Everyone that believed on him knew that he was the one who would come to sit on the throne, the everlasting throne of King David. They were looking for him to set up that kingdom. 
They're expecting that the, that the Abrahamic covenant, as far as Israel was concerned, would come into completion, that they'd get all of their land back, that, 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 uh, that, that they would have this glorious kingdom again. In chapter 9, 10, 11, the apostle begins to explain why that's not happening right now. And the gist of it is that God set, he, the author of Hebrews said it like that, so that they without us would not be blessed. See, God, it, turn over to uh, 11, look at verse 25. This, this sort of sums it up. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Blindness in part befell Israel so that the gospel could be preached to the Gentiles. And aren't you glad? That's, that's why we're in church today. Because the gospel was presented to the Gentiles. It began to spread. It wasn't just for the Jew. It was for the Gentiles and the Jews didn't understand it so they were blinded. What's he waiting on? The fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Friend, there is coming a day when the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. There's coming a day when that last Gentile in the church age will make a decision to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the gospel era in this dispensation is completed, Jesus is coming back, glory to God, and he's gonna take the entire church out of here. Woo, glory to God. Now there will be some people saved in the, in the tribulation period, but they won't be part of the church. Church will be gone. So they won't be part of the church. The church is what is, is, is being uh, worked out right now, the body of Christ in the earth. And when the fullness of the Gentile comes in, Gentiles come in, we're out of here. It could be soon, church. It could be really soon. Oh, glory to God. Amen. So that's, that's what he has said. That's what Paul was referring back to when he said, I beg you, brethren, therefore, looking, looking back, by the mercies of God, all of these things that I have just described to you that he outlined in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, are all the mercies of God. Though we were condemned and deserved to die, we were justified, but now... The righteousness, the God's way of man, making man righteous before him has been revealed not by the law, but through faith. Oh, glory to God. We've been justified. We're walking the sanctified life. He's talking to us about what that means and the power that's in it and, and the glorification that's awaiting. And not only that, the mercy to the Gentiles that he would put the kingdom on hold in order to bring us in. All of these are the mercies of God. Oh, glory to God. He's more merciful than we think about sometimes. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me get back to my text. <laughs> he said, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by these afore, 
aforementioned, in other words, these mercies that, that, that I've been writing to you about, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Has anybody noticed, has it occurred to anybody, or have you taken note for that for the last, I don't know how many years, it's been at least two or three years, maybe a little longer, time flies, but for at least the last two or three years, the Holy Spirit has had me talk a lot about the presenting of our bodies as a living sacrifice. Anybody aware of that? Have you noticed that? That's not been accidental. Now, I, I, I endeavor to follow the Spirit's leading when I teach. But I hadn't really put it in that perspective. I hadn't really thought about it that much until I, I began preparing a little more on this line and I can see that God has been infinite. And I hadn't noticed I hadn't noticed the fact that he had been emphasizing other than the messages that I preached. I really wasn't tying them together. But God's been emphasizing something around here. It has to do with the church, the believer, presenting his body as a living sacrifice. Putting the flesh under. It matters to God. It matters. He said, I beg you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that God has done, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this word present. Now, there, there's an, an, and I refer to this sometimes and in, in make this ex, explanation because though I've said it, not everybody hears it and that people weren't there. There was a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. 200 years before Christ, it's called the Septuagint. If you're ever looking in, in uh, reference works, you'll see the capital LXX. That's the abbreviation of the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek word here that's used for present, to present your bodies, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word was used referring to the presentation of the sacrifices before the altar of God. The Israelites would bring their offerings and they would bring them and they would face them toward the, temp, the tabernacle or the temple and therefore to present them to God. So this is very much a Levitical word. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now the sacrifices of the Old Testament were all dead sacrifices. They, they killed the ram. They killed the sheep. They killed the, the, the birds, the pigeons, the doves. All of the offerings that they brought were dead offerings. Well, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But that doesn't mean blood didn't need to be shed. Because it did. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Certainly the non-shedding of blood couldn't take away sin. There is no remission without the shedding of blood. No, Jesus came as one of us. See, my blood needed to be shed. Your blood deserved to be, God deserved your blood on an altar. He, you owed it to him. I owed it to him. My sin and your sin called for death. But one came in our stead. 
as a substitute. Glory to God. One who was not guilty. One who who had never sinned. One who had never yielded. who Who was pure and holy and sinless. And he allowed his back to be beaten. He gave his cheek to the smiter. He offered up his body to be tortured and abused and poured out his blood. And by the, by the miracle of our union together with Christ in the, in the uh, process of faith, the transaction, I should say, of faith, when we believed on the Lord Jesus, somehow, I don't know, I can't explain it, I'm just happy to know it's true. God took you and me and placed us into Christ, into his death, his burial, his resurrection, his, his ascension, and his seating. Glory to God. So we are still to present our bodies as a sacrifice, but not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. How we live, the... He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. What's the next word? Holy. Holy. The Old Testament talks about serving God in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is beautiful to God. Now, religion is not very holy. And, and what a lot of people call holiness, religious holiness, is not beautiful. It's not beautiful to God and it's not beautiful to anybody else. But we are to present our bodies to, as, as the priest. In fact, the word service, which is your reasonable service, that word service has to do with the idea, again, of, of the priest offering up worship to God on behalf of, of the children of Israel. So Paul almost certainly had in his mind the idea of the believer priest. We are priest unto God. Offering up the sacrifice daily of our bodies holy. H-O-L-Y, holy. That word means set apart. It means consecrated, dedicated, set apart unto God. That's very important to God. I said it's very important. He went on to say, which is well-pleasing to God. I think the New King James says acceptable to God. In the Greek, there's a, there's a suffix, the word son on the front of that, and it means, the rest of the word means pleasing, but the word son means well-pleasing. In other words, God is well-pleased. Or you could say he's extraordinarily pleased, above measure pleased. When we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. See, it's one thing to, to offer up a dead sacrifice, which is nothing but a, mechan- a mechanical action, a religious action. But when we offer up our bodies 
as living sacrifices, that, that's something that we have investment in. We're offering up everything we have, everything we are, our whole selves to God. God is well pleased. He's, he's not just pleased, he's extraordinarily well pleased when we do this. When we live day to day, see, this is, this is more than just a... Uh, I, I, it's hard to say this. I want to say it's more than just a lifestyle, but, but, but you'll misunderstand what I mean. Let me, let, me, let me back up. Let me illustrate it like this. I came out of a holiness denomination. The, the, the denomination that my wife and I were raised in was a Pentecostal denomination, but it was very much a holiness it, the, the origins and the roots of our movement was based in holiness before the Pentecostal outpouring. We were essentially a holiness uh, uh, movement that then we were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that sort of took on the big characteristics because that's where all of, all of the opposition and, and persecution uh, began to be focused. But before that, the persecution was focused on the holiness part. We were holiness people. But see, holiness became, I say it like this, a thoughtless practice in that we just believed that our behavior made us holy. Now, growing up, I've told you this before, growing up uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s, well, through all of 1960s, to be a Pentecostal, was to really be looked down on. We were criticized, we were made fun of, and I, I didn't let people know anything about my church life when I was at school. I didn't want any questions, because most, you know, the, uh, somebody said years ago, they're more Baptists than there are people on the planet, you know. Seemed that all of my friends went to Baptist churches. They, I know they all didn't, but it seemed that way. And Baptists back then were some of the strongest opponents of Pentecostalism. I mean, they preached against it in their pulpits. And I told you some of the stories, you know, man that I work with, what his, his uh, 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 mother told him. She said, you, you need to stay away from those churches over there. Said on Sundays, those people get in there and they just roll around on the floor and holler and scream and work themselves up into a into a frenzy and about three o'clock in the afternoon, the fire department has to come in and they hose them all down and they go home and they do it again the next Sunday. Now he said, he, now he told me this, we were both grown, he was working with me. He said, now Edwin, he said, I, I knew eventually that couldn't be true. He said, but when my mom told me that as a little boy, he said, I believed it. He said, you have no idea how difficult it is to overcome that kind of prejudice that, that we were told, those people, you're dangerous. Stay away from them. Well, you know, we, we grew, I grew up with that kind of, of, of uh, uh, complex. So I, I didn't tell, tell anybody. But, you know, every now and then, it did come up. Somebody would just ask me, well, Edwin, what kind of church do you go to? And... Uh, I would tell them the name of my church and most of them weren't really familiar with that denomination. And they said, well, what kind of church is it? Well, what is that? 
You know what? My, here's, here's the way I described my church. Now, some of you other Church of God people, I'm sure you did the same thing. Here's the way I described my church. Well, we don't believe in this, and we don't believe in this other, and we don't believe in these things, and we don't go here and go there, and we don't do this, and we don't do that. So we don't dance, because, you know, they had school dances. We couldn't go. And we don't go to bowling alleys because they drink beer. See, we were separate from the world. So anywhere unsaved people met and did unsaved things, we stayed away from. Because we didn't go to places, we didn't go to pool parlors. Now, you don't even know what that is today. Pool halls, places. They, back then, they had places you could go to to just play pool. Now, they, you know, I, I understand they do that in bars sometimes, but uh, we couldn't do that. We didn't go to pool halls. We didn't go to dances. We didn't go to bowling alleys. We didn't go to ball games. We didn't even go to high school ball games. Because sure enough, you go to a high school ball game, there's going to be Mr. So-and-so back there, and he's going to be smoking. And he's probably got a can of beer in his hand, even though he wasn't supposed to. And people are going to be cussing and just, it's just worldly, worldly entertainment. Anything that the world did, we stayed away from. So we didn't believe in dancing. We didn't believe in going to movies. We didn't believe, you know, movies were out. We didn't believe in all of these things. And we didn't do this. We didn't do that. And we didn't do that. I couldn't tell anybody what we did believe in. (laughs) Because to me, holiness was all the things we don't do. Now, I'm sure that at some point in Sunday school and in teaching, someone taught doctrine in my church. Because after I got back into fellowship with the Lord, some of that doctrine uh, surfaced again. And, and the things that I was beginning to read in the Bible, I began to understand because I'd heard about those things. But those weren't the things that were emphasized. What was emphasized, again, was our what we don't do, what we don't, where we don't go, and who we don't associate with, and all of these things. In other words, it was external holiness. And because of the way we lived, we thought that made us holy. And we were quite, I mean, I, I, I wasn't because I wasn't very holy. But, but, and most young people weren't. But, the, 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 the organization, our people were very self-satisfied in their holiness and to them it was something that they took for granted because it was a lifestyle they had adapted uh, but it wasn't something that they were conscious of offering up to God every day. I never heard that in my life. See, holiness is, is not just externals. It'll affect the external. But holiness, sanctification, is coming to the place in your life where you realize this body has been redeemed. We've been, we've been bought. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, you were bought, you were paid for at a very high, high price. And you belong to God. He said, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, both of which are God's. God has a right to the offering up of our bodies, but he won't make us do it. He won't require us to... He won't prescribe external 
uh, things for us to regiment our lives into. In other words, this uh, uh, asceticism, is that how you say that? Where, where you live a, a life where you don't enjoy anything and you just, uh, a, a, a life of self-sacrifice. God doesn't prescribe those things. That's what legalism prescribes. And that's really what, what my denomination was doing. He won't do that. Instead, he said, you present your body every day. It's important that we get up in the mornings and say, God, this body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit and it belongs to you. Therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to not allow my body to do what it wants to do. I'm not going to allow the carnal desires of my unrenewed flesh and unredeemed flesh drag me into sin. I'm not going to do it. Offering up your body as a living sacrifice is saying no to the sinful influences and impulses of the flesh. And God is well pleased with that. He is very pleased. I dare say that few Christians today ever really give much thought to offering their bodies up before God as a living sacrifice, holy and sanctified. I dare say few Christians do that as a conscious act with any uh, regularity, if at all. I think most Christians just go through life and at best just try to stay out of condemnation. But it's so much more important than that. All of the sacrifices in the, old, in the old covenant were typical of the Lord Jesus Christ that he offered the ultimate sacrifice of his body on the cross. We, we have been delivered from that. He did that in our place. So the, the, the least we can do is to offer these redeemed bodies that have been given so much promise of, of redemption, health, victory, prosperity in this life. The least we can do is to come to God and say, God, my body is yours. I'm, gonna, I'm going to be careful to follow the spirit of God in my conduct, in my conduct. Listen to the Holy Spirit and put the flesh under. It's very important. Like I said, I, I really hadn't considered it or noticed it, you could say, or really thought about it. But the Lord's had me dealing with this for several years now in our church. On a, on a not every service, but on a, a recurring, it's been a recurring theme. He wants us, he, before Jesus comes back, I believe there will be a church that will be truly holy and separated from the contaminants of this world. That doesn't mean segregated from this world. That, see, that's what the old timers, that's how they misunderstood it. They thought we had to segregate from the world. Jesus didn't segregate from, from sinners. He was right there in the midst of them, but he was very much separate from them. 
And I believe before Jesus returns that the church must truly get a revelation of our separation from this world. For, and, and when I say seven, I'm a, I, 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 there's, I, there's so much more to get in here that I have to say about this. It's not separating from the people of the world. It's separating from the philosophies and the influence of this world's thinking. And that's the next part of this verse. I very much believe that God is calling the church to a walk of holiness, not religion, but of personal holiness and consecration to God. Well, amen. Praise the Lord. I didn't get as far as, well, I I didn't really know how far I'd get. But uh, there's a lot more to say, praise God. And thank God we have time to say it. If Jesus comes back before I get to the rest of it, will it be okay with you? All right, praise the Lord. But if he doesn't, we've got some trees to cut down. Amen. (laughs) Glory to God. Well, God is good, isn't he? Amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Father, we thank you today for your goodness, your blessing, your mercy, your mercies. You've begged us in light of your mercies all that you've done for us that we present like the priest in the Old Testament presented their bodies. They presented their, the bodies of these animals. We are to present our bodies, not dead slain animals, but living sacrifices. It's part of our priestly service. We take it seriously today, Father. Glory to God. There are some things that we just have to say no to in this life. There's some ways of living, some ways of thinking, some ways of talking and behaving that we just have to say no to. And even if the world says it's okay, it's not okay. And there are things in this world, Father, and in this life we have to say yes to. Even if the world says we shouldn't, we have to be faithful to you, Father. To live for you, to serve you, to do your work, to conduct ourselves, not just in the negative, not just abstinence of certain things, but on the positive side the doing of things that we know are right, taking stands where we know we ought to take a stand, even if it means contradicting the philosophies of this age. These are all things, Father, that are involved in presenting ourselves to you as living sacrifices because we very much embody you. We very much embody the Holy Spirit. We very much, each of us, embody your glory because it's on the inside of us. And we have to let that shine through us, shine out of these bodies, shine through 
in this dark world that men can see truth and light, power and liberty, grace and holiness in our lives, Lord. You've described it as an adornment. We adorn ourselves with holiness. Glory to God. Some people in the world don't appreciate it, but you appreciate it. You love it very much. You are well pleased, super pleased when we live a life that honors you. So Father, today we pray, we make a consecration. Father, to live in such a way that would be well-pleasing. Others might not even take note, but you take note because it comes from the heart. Does it come through outward law and regulations? It comes through the heart. Glory to God. So we make a consecration today in Jesus' name. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.